What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knocks. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli. We are deep in the midst of the first weekend of the 2021 NBA playoffs. We've had a number of compelling games so far. We're going to talk about those and all of the questions that you, the listeners, have submitted. But before we do that, as always, how's it going, Dan? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I am doing pretty solid. You built a sandbox over the weekend. Rumor is correct. Yeah, we we did it from scratch for my toddler. We still have to put like a roof over it to protect the sand from the neighborhood raccoons and the elements in general. But it was a shockingly long and arduous process. Well, I'm sure your son will appreciate it. Did we already? I had a speaker request before I made you the host. Do you still have it? Did that go away? Uh, it, yeah. it went away because I think they left the room. All right, they didn't want to ask that question off. So, but I yeah, I am always curious about the speaker request before we started recording. <laughs> Um, but yeah, well, congrats to your son. What have you any quick before we get to all these questions? And if anyone in the room has a question, feel free to ask it in the chat or request to speak any early playoff impressions, play in tournament hot takes since those were flying around after the Warriors lost. I don't think anything surprised me that much in this first set of games. It seems like the teams that had to fight a little bit harder with a shorter rotation at the end of the regular season suffered for it in the play-in game, namely the Golden State Warriors against the Memphis Grizzlies, uh, the Denver Nuggets against the Portland Trailblazers in Game 1. But I don't think any outcomes are truly surprising to this point. I'm kind of with you. I think I might have missed on the Nuggets-Blazers series a ton, though. I had Nuggets in seven, but kind of watching the Blazers' offense and just the lack of bodies and then firepower on the Nuggets' end outside of Jokic... Uh, it does seem like Portland's very much going to play. Jokic can drop 30-something a night and be efficient for most of the night, and we don't care. We're going to make everyone else beat us. And I know Michael Porter Jr. won't shoot one of 10 from three right. every single night, but if you don't get Will Barton back in this series or if you don't get P.J. Dozier back to help you defend McCollum and, and Dame... I, or I good Monte Morris. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to... I'll never back off my picks, but... That's the one I feel shakiest about at the moment. Well, that and I had Clippers in five. That was a that was a terrible pick. That's just. I mean, I, I think the right. biggest thing though is just not taking too much away from Game One because I think historically, like the winner of Game One only wins the first round series like fifty two percent of the time or something like that. Oh, I thought it was in the sixties, but I, I haven't the, checked probably in two years, so that's not don't don't go off me. But we do have our first speaker request, so I'm going to assume that's a question here, and I will invite you to speak, Lil Trey Wallace. How's it going today? I'm going good. Just watching the Lakers and Suns. Yeah, talk about a uh, an interesting early start here with DeAndre Aiden just going yeah, off. AD's, yeah, DeAndre's just torching AD right now. Yeah. So, did you have a question for us? Yeah. Well, we're gonna talk about the game ones from yesterday. Yeah, the Bucks barely survived against the Heat, and the Clippers are still the Clippers, and. Uh, the Blazers beat the Nuggets. 
in the Nets destroy the Celtics. Yeah, yeah, we can definitely elaborate on those a little bit here. Um, Dan, what, did you have any thoughts on the Bucks in particular? Yeah, yo, the Bucks are legit as hell because I thought that more so going into the playoffs to begin with, but you won a game where Giannis shoots 10 of 24 from two. So that's 41.7%. Six of 13 at the foul line. The Bucks as a whole were, were trash from the foul line. Uh, they were... Or were they five of 31 from three, which was the first time they shot under 17% from three while taking at least 20 attempts since 2018. Ironically, that game was also against the Heat. And the other thing that's just not being talked about, Drew Holiday and Giannis, I don't know if you saw when I tweeted this out, they combined for more turnovers than assists. The Bucks still won that game. I know Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo struggled. Right, but, that's that's what I was going to say is like the devil's advocate here is that Butler shot four of 22 and Tyler Hero shot two of 10 and Bam Adebayo couldn't buy a bucket. Here's, so does that negate itself? No, because first of all, Tyler Hero, that's going to happen. It happened a little bit last year in the bubble, even though he was hot and that's, that's his game. He's going to be up and down and this year he's been mostly down, although he had a nice close to the season. I will also argue that Bam will be better, but like Bam is not, even when you look at his numbers, Bam is not a scorer. They need him to be more aggressive. And until he gets to that point, like I'm not, I think Jimmy's struggles are the ones that will correct themselves. And maybe he'll get a better version of Dragic, perhaps. But the fact that the Bucks were, you know, you still have Chris Middleton, but that's sort of the point is that now all of a sudden they have these closers galore where it's Giannis and Drew and Chris Middleton. And you have two players, I think, that you can reasonably put the ball in their hands in the half court in Drew and Chris Middleton when things are at a standstill in crunch time. And we saw that. They went to Drew a bunch. He wasn't great. Beat up some guys in the post, though, and that created opportunities. And then Middleton was obviously the hero there. I picked the Bucks in five in that one. I don't know what made me pick all these five-game series. I must have been – I don't know if I was stoned when I did that podcast, but uh, I don't feel terrible about that pick. It's no Mavs, no Mavs and Clippers. Yeah, I mean, I, I really am just playing devil's advocate because my primary takeaways from that game are all positive from Milwaukee, especially just – looking at the rotations, the fact that Mike Budenholzer only played nine guys in that game, the fact that he kept the starters on for the entire overtime period, and even more importantly, Giannis played 40 minutes and 27 seconds in regulation. When was the last time we could say that in a postseason game? So it feels like all of those critiques of the Bucks that helped explain these playoff shortcomings in previous, se- in previous seasons, those are slowly being eradicated. And this Milwaukee team is supremely talented and beating the heat is not an easy feat in the playoffs when they're coached by Eric Spolstra, despite the shooting woes of the stars. And the other thing here too, is that I know Giannis did not have the greatest game and he looked like he tweaked his, I don't know if it was his hip or what happened at the beginning of the game or earlier in the game, he's going to have better nights. And I don't think the heat necessarily defended him particularly well. They went with Trevor Ariza a bunch, but then they went with Bam Adebayo when it matters. That's where you miss Jay Crowder probably the most is because he was the one that defended Giannis primarily last year. So you could have Bam mucking things up mm-hmm. as the helper. If you have him on Giannis, it, it makes sense. I'm not, you know, you can't criticize Spo if they go that route for most of the game from now on, but then it takes him away from doing a lot of the other things that not only make him great, but make the heat defense so dangerous. Right. Yeah, I think, and then with the other three games, I think I was a little bit surprised that Brooklyn didn't win more easily. And the other two series, I just, I don't have a feel for them yet. Well, Portland and Denver, it feels like it could go either way, any given night. And kind of the same for Dallas and LA. 
Yeah, we have questions on some of these series too. And let's start with one that as of this recording has yet to be played. At the Lions King asks, why are the Jazz being slept on as championship contenders? I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it's, <laughs> it baffles me because they're my pick to win it all. I'm on the record with a Jazz Bucks finals with the Jazz winning in seven games. You sure not Jazz Sixers? I confused myself because I've waffled between the Sixers and Bucks, but it is officially on the record. The corrected version is Jazz versus, I mean, Bucks. <laughs> so, yeah, you're the wrong person to ask that question. I think the Jazz are legit contenders, but the reasons, some of the reasons that they're being slept on, most notably the Gobert being played off the floor stance, are bullshit. Right. Was- like, that was multiple years ago. That season's team was, I believe, 14th in offensive rating, so they didn't have that offensive juggernaut to fall back on. This year's is fourth in offensive rating and third in defensive rating during the regular season. This is a great two-way team. But I think the other reason is last year's shortcoming, where Boyan Bogdanovich was hurt, Mike Conley hadn't been fully integrated into the rotation. Neither of those are issues. Now, this is a complete team, and it's a dominant team. The the two things that concern me the most would be, and we've talked about this ad nauseum here, the absence of that clear, bigger wing defender. Royce O'Neal's a little small. He'll help you when you're going up against guards, for sure. Anyone in the backcourt, really. After that, Joe Ingles can help you, but like that's not who you want checking LeBron or Le- or Kawhi or Paul George, for that matter, because they would be slated to meet the Clippers in the second round, which I think is, I, I say it's a terrible draw, but the Clippers are the Clippers. And I don't, anytime you want to think you're going to trust the Clippers, you end up not trusting the Clippers because the Clippers are the Clippers. That's my justification there. The other thing, which I actually think is probably more salient. I've seen people focus a lot on how their offense will fare in the postseason. They're going to be fine. Maybe they don't generate as looks as easily, but we've actually seen them before they were as talented as this team generate high quality looks in the playoffs. They just weren't hitting them. The players they have now are going to hit them. They were first in the league during the regular season in effective field goal percentage on pull-up jumpers. The actual concern at this point is Donovan Mitchell didn't play to, um, towards the end of the regular season because of that sprained ankle. And now he's going to, you know, maybe the rest does him well, but you are asking him to come back all of a sudden in the playoffs. How long does it take to ramp him back up? And the Grizzlies are going to go at you. Dylan Brooks is going to try and be physical with him and will be physical with him. That's a matchup to really watch. I'm They're not going to lose to the Grizzlies and I shouldn't dismiss the Grizzlies so easily because I did when we were doing previews for every series, I went right into Warriors jazz and only spent like five minutes on Grizzlies jazz. The Donovan Mitchell thing concerns me. I think because they're so much better than their first round opponent though, it does give him that you know, leeway to, to work himself back into the action. Even him and Mike Conley who missed a bunch of time towards the end of the year too. I kind of think it's a blessing in disguise that it's not a more severe injury that he was able to take it so easy at the end of the regular season and get more rested up for this playoff run because the Jazz were another team that played deep into the bubble season and didn't have as long an off season. And I don't mind that that's the way the end of the regular season worked out for them. I think it could be pretty beneficial. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. 
Uh, we do have a question in the chat right now from longtime faithful listener Noah Odage. He asks, what happens to the Hawks offense when Frank Natilakina, I'm going to keep saying it like that for you, Dan, effectively shuts down Trey Young? And Noah, I, I'm just confused by the question because when Trey Young gets shut down, they don't have an offense. This year, they, they have a little bit more of an offense. With When uh, Bogdanovich coming on has been huge for them. I will say... If Frank Nielakina does not play at least 15 to 20 minutes per game in this series, my prediction would be that the Knicks have lost it because they don't have anyone else who makes sense to defend Trey Young. Maybe Reggie Bullock, maybe, but that's just, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that they should be starting Alfred Payton. I would start Frank Nielakina or Alec Burks if I were them. See, I'm not even saying just Frank. I understand that you want someone who can maybe get you into your offense. I personally think that if you put someone like Nielakina on the floor, it would force RJ Barrett to be more aggressive, but Neil Akina needs to play this series. And I know Tom Thibodeau is t- like tiptoed around it saying he might play him. I have two concerns there. Um, these aren't questions so much as just observations. I'm kind of tired of hearing Tom Thibodeau compliment Frank Neil Akina so much only to not play him. It just, it bugs the hell out of me. I'm not saying it's fake, but if you're, if you have this much faith in him, why not play him? And then right. two with that, I I've already touched upon this. I'm not, I still don't understand the Alfred Payton stuff. I, if you're not going to start Neil Kina, start Alec Burke, someone I understand not wanting to start Derek Rose because of what that could do for your bench. The him and IQ minutes have been fire. It shouldn't be Alfred Payton. And this is the series where that could come back to haunt you. You give, if Alfred Payton is the one that winds up defending Trey young and you even do that till the, the six thirty six mark or whatever the trademark minute is where you pull him. That's like five minutes of Trey young, potentially just going bonkers. And that's, you know, Trey can do a up. lot of damage in those five minutes. Correct. We also have a live update here. I saw this during the podcast. Hoping. You know, I don't, I don't have the Lakers Suns game on because we're recording here. Have it uh, a pause to watch later. But per Mike Trudell at Lakers Reporter, looked like Chris Paul hurt his neck slash upper back area by making contact with teammate Cam Johnson after landing, trying to contest a putback layup from LeBron. He just walked off straight to the locker room. Sounds like he was in a lot of pain on the floor. Players from both teams surrounding him. That would be a disaster for the Suns. I don't think yeah. there's any way around that. You have They've, to. You immediately wave Cam Johnson. And right. yeah, <laughs> I'm not trying to make light of it, but they would they'd be fucked. Pardon my French. Yeah, I mean, we we both picked the Suns in this first round series. That Without immediately changes. It's, Without it's Chris Lakers Paul, I'm three. not making that pick. Yeah, it's, it's Lakers in three. Without Chris Paul. There's nothing that you can do to replace those minutes. Uh, so, oh, go ahead. Sorry. All the best thoughts to Chris Paul right now. Yeah, no, seriously. And we want to see good series. And this was, this I think was shaping up to be, would have shaped up to have been a good one. And I do have it on here. I saw him get injured and had my fingers crossed. It wasn't serious, but it's on mute. So I didn't know the context. Another playoff question from at nugget one, one Oh five. Does Boston have any chance of winning? No, it's over. And I think game one is almost a disaster in the sense you hold the Nets to under 105 points and you still lose. The, How do you score 93 points against that Brooklyn defense? Kemba Walker plays like not a very good player. Jason Tatum, life was made hell on Jason Tatum. That's where they really miss Jalen Brown. And it, like the defense, the Nets weren't keying in on Kemba Walker the way that they were Jason Tatum. You saw Jeff Green and Kevin Durant defend Tatum a bunch, but that was just like the kitchen sink was thrown at Jason Tatum. And that they're able to do that defeats the purpose of having Kemba Walker. And I do think after this series, if Kemba Walker 
no one expects the Celtics to win, but if he doesn't have like two or three straight games of close to vintage Kemba performances, there are so many conversations that need to be had about mm-hmm. Kemba's place in the league overall and where the, the Celtics go from here. He has two years left on his max deal. They can't, they're not going to win anything with this version of Kemba Walker. And I know he's been banged up this year, oblique and knee issues still like that. That's just the reality of Boston situation. They need Kemba to be right now. He has to be their second best player, but you have to look at this through the lens of, can he even be our third or fourth best player next year? I think players like LeBron James and Chris Paul have kind of made us forget that for primary ball handlers who are tasked with initiating a lot of offense, 31 is usually that magic age where you see the sudden drop-offs. And Kemba turned 31 earlier in May. It's not inconceivable that we've just seen the last of vintage Kemba, sad as that may be. But to answer the original question, like I'd be downright shocked if this is anything more than a gentleman's sweep. Yeah, I had, I believe I had the Nets just sweeping them outright mm-hmm. because Jalen Brown means that much to them. The, uh, I, I don't even, like, what's the bright spot for the Celtics Nets? I guess Robert Williams, he put on a, a shot blocking clinic. I did see, though, that only one of his nine blocks resulted in the Celtics winding up with possession. The rest went out of bounds or ended up in the, like, in the Nets' hands. That's, I think that does show that there's limited value to shot blocking. It's important, but steals and forcing turnovers are way more important. There are shot blocking artists throughout NBA history who were uniquely adept at keeping the ball in bounds or swatting into their teammates. Bill Russell famously was able to start fast breaks off of his blocks. Tim Duncan was an absolute master at keeping them in bounds. Shaquille O'Neal loved swatting them into the 14th row of the stands. One of those things is more valuable than the others. I will also say, though, that Robert Williams looks like he got a lot better in one-on-one situations where he held up on some switches. Maybe that's the bright spot is, okay, center of the future here. Let's move forward. We have to trade Kemba. That's a discussion that's happening this year. That's that's all Hardwood Knox nominee, Robert Williams, by the way. Oh, yes, I forgot. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Uh, We have some other playoff-related questions here. At Karan K. Hanna, or Karan Kana, I apologize if I butchered the the hell out of that pronunciation. Hi, can you find some data on 80s offensive efficiency and Lakers overall driving Pate finishing when Drummond is on the court? And I can because you asked so politely. You said hi. I really appreciate that. So I brought up some numbers here because I'm assuming you don't have those off of top of mind. Maybe you do because you're a genius. But this season, AD is taking a career low 32% of his field goal attempts at the rim. And a career high, 53% are coming from mid-range. A lot of that, I think, has to do, I mean, even now, but at the beginning of the season, and it was point blank said, he wasn't in the best shape after the championship run, and he was injured. I think that really contributed to the diminished volume at the basket. He is still shooting like 75% at the rim, and that's a career high. So there is that to consider. He is shooting on those mid-range attempts, though, 43% which is tied for the second best mark of his career. So at least you're, that's not, those aren't the attempts that you want, but when he's not hitting threes at an astronomical clip, the fact that he has that in his arsenal is huge. I do think they need him to get uh, to the basket more. And that brought me up to a piece of trivia for you, Adam, concerning Anthony Uh-oh. Davis. When is the last time that role man possessions accounted for at least 20% of Anthony Davis's offense? I feel like there's a solid chance this is a trick question and it's never happened. 
So I'm going to go with his rookie season back in 2012-13. It was 2016-2017. Okay. But it's been... Still in New Orleans. And yeah, and look, it's been so a half decade. The thing here is he became such a great player. He didn't only have to be a play finisher. So I get why that volume would dip this season. And it was even last season, 14.7% of his offensive possessions came as the role man, not particularly efficient shot 55.8% on them. A lot more popping there. His effective field goal percentage was around 60 in these situations. That's, that's great. And then last season was kind of the same story, 12.7%. So it's only a tick up. I don't know if this has to do with the Lakers spacing or, or what, I would love to see Anthony Davis involved in way more pick and roll than he is now. I understand he's so much more than a play finisher, but if you give him the wiggle room to maneuver, and I think when you're playing him at the four, he probably doesn't have it as much, especially if the other big is Andre Drummond on the court. I don't, that just feels like you're leaving money on the table by not it using does. him more as the diver. Look, I'm going to channel my my inner Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal here, which is like buried deep somewhere in the recesses of my psyche. So you're going to say, say you that, haven't watched any of the games and you slept through them and you're going to give your opinions anyway. Yeah, essentially. Okay. But anecdotally, I think Anthony Davis spends too much time on the perimeter. And I'm in no way one of those people who's like, oh, we need the traditional big man play, like bring back the post up, blah, 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 blah. But he does. It, it feels like the Lakers use him just spotting up on the wings a little bit too much and take him away from his strengths. I don't know if that's the scheme that Frank Vogel has designed, if that's Anthony Davis just not wanting to play the five in any way, ladder, shape, right? or form. Maybe. Because I don't know. If you have another like, big he's on the floor. so good around the basket. Yeah. I just You're taking away such a, a dangerous, devastating weapon from that offense. I think part of it is out of necessity – because he's the second big on the floor. And unless that other big is this season, let's look at Marcus all. If it's Trez, if it's Drummond, he can't be that guy because they have to be that guy. Right. Or they could play him at the five and, <laughs> and not have him be the second big. One of the two, really, you know, we never talked about that latter point before. I used to think I was oversimplifying it by saying that players need to stop with the, I don't want to play this position, that position until Mo Doc Heel, uh, former video coordinator for two NBA teams and the Australian national team, I believe, told me that it is absolute BS and that they should, you know, for Anthony Davis, there's, I know he wants to fly around the perimeter on defense. Is he really getting, like, he gets banged up enough. He's on the floor all the time. Maybe if he's guarding centers, he actually won't have to move as much and won't get injured or whatever. But I... Look, he's going to take shots to the face wherever he is because he's Anthony Davis and that's his thing. Right. So this is this is like Melo not wanting to play the four way back when all over again. Really quickly on the Drummond stats. So the Lakers, 4.3% more of their shots come from short mid-range when he's on the court. 1.4% of their rim frequency drops. So the percent of shots that are coming at the rim when he's on the court are are dipping by 1.4%. I actually do think that's his fault a little bit just because he's going to bail out of some of his roles a little too soon and throw up those junky short mid-rangers, as we just alluded to. When you're looking at the accuracy in those situations, Los Angeles' accuracy at the rim drops by 2.9 percentage points when Drummond is on the court. The short mid-range accuracy drops by 4.9 percentage points. Those are very not good numbers. Look, we just this those are not very good numbers. This is going to be so dated, but for anyone who has not had the update on Chris Paul or is listening live, he will return to game one. So, Well, he's so, available to return to game one. We don't yet know if he will, right? Well, he better. I have sons in seven. 
Like, come on, right. CP3, let's go. Right. Um, <laughs> I do. We have two questions on the Warriors that I guess I'll save because they, they are interesting. We have, because it's the Hardwood Knox podcast, we do have a Nikola Jokic question. It wouldn't be an episode without one. Nicole, this comes from at Christopher asks, Jokic has been the best player in the league this season and deserves MVP, but where would he rank among players overall? I'd assume LeBron, KD, and Steph are still better, but it's hard to say that with how the season has gone. There are two different ways to look at this question before I hand you the talking stick. Would be this season specifically, where did he rank? Or if you were just doing this heading into next year, where would you put him? I will throw out these three number or I looked at some of my favorite catch-alls just to see where he ranked this year. In TPA, total points added. Do you know which website has that? It's ESPN, right? No, it's it's NBA Math. Oh, okay, okay. Do better next time. He ranks first in total points added. In estimated plus minus from dunks and threes, he ranks first. In luck adjusted, real adjusted plus minus, he ranks second. And then in LeBron, which I'm leery of, but I really do love B-ball index. I just, stats that are named after players always, I don't know if there's any science behind that, but when they're <laughs> named after players, it just, it tweaks me a little bit. He ranks first in LeBron. And the other thing I'll say is if you were going to do this as a multi-year thing, Adam, he is 12th in three-year luck adjusted, mm-hmm. real adjusted plus minus. So please. First, a side note that Chris Willis Reed Paul has officially re-entered the game. Um, I, the way the way I want to look at this question at NBA Math, we do the Crystal Basketball rankings. Preseason, we ask all the contributors to rank players and grade them and, and scale them based on how we expect them to play for the upcoming season. After the postseason, we ask them to grade how they played during the previous season. So one of those is looking solely at the contributions and availability and everything from the campaign in question. The other is more of a forward-looking exercise that allows you to be predictive and, and get a little bit bolder with, with your takes. So, yeah, he's been the best player in basketball this season. We've seen prominent outlets write about that and whether it's the case or if he's the MVP despite not being the best player in basketball, just the narrative factors and the availability factors and the quality of his team and all that. But I think if you look at it from the perspective of the forward-looking analysis, that you're still putting him behind a few guys. I would be pretty surprised, again, looking at like the crystal basketball exercise, because I think it's a good way to frame this question. If he finishes looking ahead to the 2021-22 season, if he's ahead of LeBron, if he's ahead of Steph, if he's ahead of Kawhi, Giannis probably too. Beyond those, I'm not sure that you're going to have anyone else. Those would be the only names I consider. Maybe Luka Doncic you might throw in there. I think Luka is going to be one of those guys battling for fifth with him. Is Kawhi still in front of him? I think I'm letting the... I don't think he should be. I think he will be. I I think I'm letting the Clippers' clipperiness cloud my judgment there, because I do think he should probably be in front of him. There's a chance maybe LeBron is the one that drops off behind him when looking at just sort of that group. And Harden could still be in the mix, but I, I do think the calculus changes for him and NKD, given how the Nets are built now with all three of those stars. They're, I would say well, Steph and Giannis are the two guarantees. Yeah, those are, I'm 100%, those are the only guarantees, I would actually say. Yeah. So hopefully that answered that question. More playoff questions we have here. Again, if anyone has a question live, let Adam know because I made him the hosts because he's the hostess with the mostest. I've oh, this is power. This is interesting. I marked it down and then did only minimal research on it <laughs> at uh, M underscore 
Bilal35 asks, which player who isn't well-known in mainstream basketball conversations will have a breakout playoff run? Wow, that's a great question. I think Robert Williams probably counts. That's a good answer. Um, hmm. Not well-known. I want to say Nicholas Claxton, but... He's not going to get enough minutes. Well, he... He he brought that upon himself in game one because he he fouled so much early on switches, but I don't think the Nets are going to trust him anyway. So yeah, I'd write him off. Marcus Howard is probably a good one in Denver. Due Mikhail to the Bridges. Okay, that's fine. Um, please, I want to hear everything about Mikael Bridges. So I'm going to set my stopwatch for 60 minutes and you need to use all of them. Well, I think we talked about how he might have moved out of the underrated category during the regular season for people who are paying very close attention to the NBA, but the Suns still haven't really broken through on the national scene, despite being a primary talking point when Chris Paul was being talked about as a potential MVP challenger for Nikola Jokic. Um, People talking about Devin Booker, as they always want to do. I don't think the nuances of that team are known yet, and Mikhail Bridges now has one of the most marquee first round series imaginable where he's going to be asked to check LeBron James and Anthony Davis and make his presence felt. And I think he's going to get a lot more love from national audiences, especially if they win that series. And then he's tasked with either slowing down Luka Doncic or Kawhi Leonard in the next round. That Yeah. I never know how deep cut to do with these. Noah said in the chat, TLC or Shamit from the Nets, uh, those dudes, Shamit needs to not be just so much of, Game one was disastrous for him, and TLC started off the season so well, but ended off falling off a cliff. But yeah, TLC would be a good one just because he sort of came on for the Nets in the last year when they had their skeleton crew in the bubble. And he, in theory, is someone the Nets could use if they want to play him, a wing that can shoot and make threes while playing off the ball and then can check some different guys on on defense. No one else really springs. I did mention Marcus Howard because the, the Nuggets are throwing everybody out there, and he is just an offensive lightning rod as we saw in game one against the, the blazers. I don't know who else brings to mind for you. You know what the problem is here is because a lot of these guys are not going to see minutes in the postseason enough right. to make that imprint. So let's just say, That's why I Hood. naturally go to like those second level stars. Like Tobias Harris is another name who comes to mind here. That's too. He's on. I think that's contract. too well known already because of the contract. I, do, I think still like, that's the I, I tier think, I'm looking at. I think Bryn Forbes has a chance because Milwaukee is so focused on diversifying their offense. They gave him some minutes in game one. It helps that you can hide him on Trevor Reza defensively. And he led the NBA. I think we've said this multiple times in points per touch this season. And look, Frank Nielkina, he's going to lock down Trey Young. It's going to happen. All you know right, what so, so to that point, I actually think Kevin Herter is a good answer here. Just to do everything guy where if they actually do put Frankie Smokes on Trey Young throughout the game and force a secondary playmaker to emerge, that that's a role that Herter has capably filled this season. That's a good point. Also, Frankie Smokes, have we made him too mainstream? I think we have. On this podcast, for sure. <laughs> Herter's a good one, though. I was going to say DeAndre Hunter, but I feel like he still has his draft pick cachet, and he's really only under the radar because he missed so much of the season, not because mm. he's a bad player. Exactly. Uh, this is Oh, that's a Grizzlies. Let's save the Grizzlies. Oh, this one's an easy one at Rose on YT asks, has a one seed ever been swept in the first round? The answer is no. Uh, they have lost five times. The two times that happened in the best of five series and went the full five games in the best of seven era or any best of seven series. 
they've all gone at least six for the other three. So we believe Warriors over the Mavericks was six, right? Correct. Do the so, MVP question. Let's get it out of the way. Um, let's go to something else first that I could find the the MVP question here because I didn't have it marked down. I didn't know you wanted to do it. Uh, so, okay, this one from at Dario underscore Rivero is, is CP3 MVP. He is in my book. Go ahead, Adam. That's all I got. Just a sigh of just I'm resigned to this question. Always populating our mailbags. That's all I got. I'm just sad. All right. Well, that's a little disappointing. So I haven't found the other question that you wanted just yet. Uh, I would just say, I don't understand the impetus to make it the CP3 MVP thing happen. Is it just, we need to change the conversation so much? I don't you know if you want to throw them in the top five, I think that's fine. I don't know how you make a case for him over Jokic. I don't know how you make a case for him either over Embiid, Steph, Giannis. Steph, like, Giannis, LeBron. It's just, um, LeBron. Did LeBron play enough this season? I don't know, but like, isn't the argument fairly similar where it's just about raising the level of a team, both with on-court contributions and leadership contributions? I mean, I suppose... I literally, I've, it is not showing up in the replies. I'm going to go back through our chat because I sent it to you. So here it is. If if at uh, MVP World asks, if, if every MVP vote from every single year of the NBA was cast at once, including second and third place votes, who would be the all-time MVP? And what would the next nine years look like? I, my follow-up question would be, Unless he's not including this year and wanted to ke- like just end it at twenty thirty, why nine years? That would bring us to twenty twenty nine. I'm just very, I'm just very curious. I'm very confused about the nine years part in general. Like, are we predicting the next nine MVPs? Are we predicting who's going to get the most MVP votes over the next nine years? Because if that's the question, it's probably going to be Luka Doncic, Kate Cunningham, maybe. I'll allow it. <laughs> uh, I don't have an answer. To you just said you wanted to do this question. MVP. Well, I, I have a pseudo answer because <laughs> okay. there's no way that I have the hours and hours and hours of free time necessary to compile all of the MVP votes that are not in one place, especially because the ones from the 60s and 70s, we don't have the full breakdowns immediately available. But we do have something called MVP award shares, which is a basketball reference creation and looks at the percentage of the possible voting points that a MVP candidate received. So when 2015-16 Stephen Curry was unanimous, he got one full award share. Everyone else who has not been unanimous is you know, getting 0.9 something award shares because they're still the runaway winner, but they're not getting every single possible first place vote. We do have all-time leaderboards for MVP award shares. So this is publicly available on Basketball Reference, but I'll just run through the top 10 and I guess see if anyone really jumps out at you as being a surprising inclusion or being way too low. Uh, Number 10 is Kobe Bryant at 4.2. Tim Duncan is 4.3. Carl Malone is 4.3. Shaquille O'Neal is 4.4. Bill Russell is 6th at 4.7. Magic Johnson is 5th at 5.1. Larry Bird is 4th at 5.6. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 3rd with 6.1. Then a gigantic jump to Michael Jordan at number 2 with 8.1. And LeBron James at 8.8. I it seems I'm, like I've always really liked this this metric just because it is a pretty good approximation of of NBA history just right off the cuff. 
was going to say, I'm, I'm probably a bit surprised that Larry Bird was so high, not that he was on the list. Yeah, I think I'm a little surprised Bill Russell wasn't higher. But some of the MVP votes back in Russell's era were kind of strange. Like the fact that Wilt Chamberlain didn't win MVP during his 50-point-per-game season. Like that's always been weird. He might have, he could have won six man of the year though, if he was coming up points per game, even if he was starting, could have just given him six man. Well, of the considering year. he didn't miss a single minute of a single game, including overtime that year and played more than 48 minutes per game. I feel fairly confident that he would not have been eligible for six man of the year. No, no. I said, even though he started games, clearly just give it to him. Uh, anyway. Okay. Okay. Fair. Give him the board. I guess th- that's called the scoring title. So yeah. He got thrown a bone somewhere. At Carrigan Holt asks, is this the year we get an answer on the Donovan Mitchell versus Devin Booker debate? Whoever goes further in the playoffs is better. I would answer this question with maybe this is when we get the answer. It's not going to be based off who goes further in the playoffs. Look at who these two teams are playing. Losing to the Lakers is a lot different than beating the Grizzlies. If that's the scenario that I, that's the most likely scenario is what I would say. Also, just don't judge an individual off a team's success. Right. Which is, and it works both ways. It it goes back to the Stephen Curry MVP debate. I'm not going to penalize him for what happens during the minutes that he's off the floor. He has no control over those, those, unless he's just in foul trouble all the time. But I'm also not going to reward him completely, or rather, I'm not going to detract from the case of Giannis or Jokic just because their teams are better built around him. Is it? Jokic's fault that he's not starting from a, a a lower rock bottom than Stephen Curry. I think basketball kind of naturally obfuscates this conversation a bit because the game is so fluid. So the example I like to use is in baseball with Mike Trout. If you're diminishing Mike Trout's accomplishments because the Los Angeles Angels are a cursed and incompetent organization that cannot make it to the playoffs, Mike Trout has nothing to do with that. He is doing absolutely everything that he can do in the field on the base paths when it's his turn to bat, but his teammates are not doing enough to get them into the playoffs. Sorry, like, what can he do to control that? And I think it's similar. It just feels a little different in basketball because it's more of a a sport where the teammates are working together fluidly. I will say I think Donovan Mitchell has bridged the gap this year, but that this wasn't necessarily a clear debate before. If you just look at luck-adjusted RAPM over the last three years, Devin Booker ranked 78th overall, 11th in offense, um, in offensive RAPM. Mitchell ranked 135th and then 60th on offense over the past three years. This season, again, the gap has closed. Um, Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Those were this year's stats. Booker is 11th on luck-adjusted offensive RAPM compared to Mitchell, who is 60th. Uh, for three years, his overall rank is 145 in luck-adjusted RPM. This is Booker, and 10th on offense. Mitchell is 124th on offense, and then 408th overall. Been the better pull-up shooter this season, but only by a hair. Booker's been having a down year there. 48.8 effective field goal percentage on pull-up jumpers. Donovan Mitchell is 49.8. When you look at Donovan Mitchell has fewer turnovers this year, He's assisting on more of his team's buckets. A lot of that does have to do with CP3 coming into Phoenix. With Booker, in general, he is the player that is better equipped to lead a team or lineups on his own. And we've seen that bear out in Utah, where 
uh, when Donovan Mitchell's on the floor, they are winning those minutes, and the offensive rating is through the roof, but they're only a plus one per 100 possessions. It's on the court without Chris Paul, uh, the Suns have outscored opponents by pl- uh, plus 6.6 points per 100 possessions. I think it's close, and we I caught a lot of shit when I said Booker was better than, than Mitchell when we had this debate previously. I, it's close, and you could probably pick either player, but I do think this is a season in which Donovan Mitchell needed to bridge a gap because it existed, and that gap probably no longer exists. If I may zoom out a little bit to focus on the forest rather than the trees, these are both 24-year-old basketball players. We're not going to have an answer for who has the better career, who has the higher peak or whatever for a while longer. It is likely to go through some ebbs and flows in both cases. That is not hot takey enough. That was vanilla. It was plain. I despised it. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, So we have two Warriors questions, which is fitting because their season ended uh, dramatically and disappointingly, though I am still excited to watch playoffs. At Lost Runton 945 asks, how do you expect Clay Thompson's return to go after missing two entire seasons? And it's, it is two entire seasons, but he last played basketball on June 14th, 2019. By the time he comes back in, when do we think the first game is going to be played next season? Probably in November, right? They're not starting in October. I think they'll start in October. And so end of October though. So let's just, you know, that's another four months on top of the two. That's like 28 months closer to two years and a half of not playing basketball. He tore his left and then he tore, he had the ruptured right Achilles. What are your expectations for him leading into next season, Adam? Look, I, I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't expecting a slightly diminished version of Clay Thompson. It's really hard to recover from an Achilles injury, much less to do so with that amount of time off and then to get back in the swing of things. Achilles injuries affect your explosiveness. They affect your change of direction ability. We've seen Kevin Durant overcome it because he's Kevin freaking Durant and he can shoot over anyone and he's just so ridiculously smooth and athletic regardless. Uh, Clay Thompson's game is very much predicated on the ability to zoom around the perimeter and find those marginally open spots where he can launch those catch and fire threes. He's always going to have that shooting ability and it might even be better from all the time that he's had to practice standstill shooting because what else has he been able to do for the last 28 months or however long that time frame has been to this point. Um, He's always going to have that ridiculously quick release. One of the things that makes him so impressive is the ability to catch the ball while moving into his release rather than needing to gather and then fire, which just gives him that split second advantage regardless of where the defense is, but locating to those spots being able to play lockdown perimeter defense against a wide variety of matchups that requires lateral quickness and the ability to switch onto these quick guards and take the the matchups that they don't want Stephen Curry having to face. I don't think that those are going to be there to the same extent. So I think we're, we're looking at more of a spot up weapon kind of in like that Joe Harris mold than the all around weapon that he had become before these injuries. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Awesome. I wrote down basically the same exact notes. It does help that even when you date back to the pre-KD era Warriors, 80 plus percent of his made baskets were coming off assists, but you outline the context of so many of those baskets when you're talking about him relocating for threes, making cuts, 
those might be more difficult for him to complete now. How fast is he going to be able to run on offense? He did always kind of have an intriguing post game, so maybe he could milk that more. His shooting will sustain. On top of those concerns, though, looking at how his points are going to come, even when he's off the ball, how many minutes do you play him? Is he ever going to be a 30-minute ever again? I don't want to rule You're shaking your head. No, I don't want to rule it out. But yeah, I would be shocked if next season, you know, where are they going to start him off at? There's no way he starts off the year at just 25 minutes per game, right? Probably not. And let's not forget that he'll be 32 next February. We're not talking about a 26-year-old recovering from these injuries anymore. And yes. beyond that, like every every 30-year-old has varying amounts of mileage. How many 30-year-olds have played, checking notes here, have played... I'm on the wrong table on the basketball reference page. I've played 4,570 playoff minutes. Like he's racked up a lot of mileage because of how deep the Warriors have gone year in and year out while he's been healthy. And that's why I think that you can't just assume the Warriors, they get this year's pick, maybe they get Minnie's pick, James Wiseman comes back, do they resign Ubre? do they not? I think you can keep this together, add your picks, and be a contender just because Clay Thompson is coming back. I think you can be better. There's probably a path to being a 51 team there, but if you want to be anything more and maximize Steph's prime, you need a, another star. So you need one of those picks to pop or you need to move them, which leads me to the next two warriors. The first of which is, um, is from at Jim Jen. Oh, three, one, eight is Jordan Poole A solid, as solid a player, for offense as he is for defense. Maybe I'm reading. Is Jordan Poole a solid player on offense and defense? Let's read the question that way. I think he can be. I'm not sure that the consistency is there on the defensive end in particular yet. He seems to have some good instincts, seems to have good hands, the ability to stay between his man and the basket. I don't see the possession-ending plays yet. I don't think that he is translating that positioning know-how and understanding of the scheme into highly impactful plays yet. Yeah, I think he improved a lot on defense this year, though. We saw it a lot off the ball. He's also, for someone his size, like he will block a shot from behind or at least contest shots around the basket. You need his offense to come together more. Shot better from three this year, over 35%. And we saw hints towards the end of the season he could do some of this stuff off the dribble. Over 74% inside three feet of the basket. They need all that, but you already mentioned it at the top of this. They need him to just be more consistent all around. I don't know if he can be that player without more really good players around him. Which leads me to my next question. This one comes from at Dan Favalli. Would you do James Wiseman, the Minnesota pick, whether it's this year or 2022 and the Warriors 2022 first round pick for Shea Gilgis Alexander. Who says no to that? I'm not sure either side says no to that one. The Thunder would be more likely. I think the Thunder are more likely to say no. I would would do that in a heartbeat if I were the Warriors. Might be even more inclined to say that he has a a better, that he's better on defense right now. Maybe more, maybe more consistent is probably the fair word there. Noah said to my trade, Sam Presti might say no. I agree that the Thunder are most likely to say no. Interesting. They don't need more picks. They could use, uh, in theory. Be sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, depending on how you feel about Moses Brown, they could use the big of the future in Wiseman. 
uh, and this is this is going to be a higher end pick unless you think that if the pick doesn't convey for Minnesota this year, and then you think they're going to be really good next year, that's where it gets dicey. What is interesting for the Thunder though, Shea Gilders Alexander is extension eligible. I'm a, I imagine Moses Brown is better than James Wiseman easily. Noah says this season probably, but long term, I I think James personally, Wiseman I think. I think Wiseman would be more likely than Moses to lead them to the promised land. Oh, God. All right. (laughs) Moving on from that, if you're the Thunder, are you at the point in your rebuild where you want to already invest max money in someone? Not that Shea isn't worth it, but as soon as you give out that first max contract, it implies something timeline. I, I think you do still, just because you have so many assets in the war chest that we've said before, as soon as a star becomes available, the Thunder are going to be a primary player for him, regardless of who it is, because they don't have any established pieces except for Shea Gilgis Alexander, who can fill either guard slot. So whoever that star is, they're the organization that can throw 843 first round draft picks at them. Does the Wiseman plus Minis pick plus a Golden State pick in 2022 or even this year's Minnesota's doesn't convey. It makes more sense to give them your lottery pick this year, if, unless it's number one or something ridiculous. Uh, and then Minis next year. But does Wiseman plus those two picks at least get Oklahoma City thinking? Probably. Just because those picks are strong enough and because Wiseman is an intriguing enough prospect despite the struggles during this rookie season. I don't, I, I still don't think they would do it, but I think they would think long and hard about it. I'm probably with you, but Shea would be... I was just trying to f- find like an offbeat star for the Warriors to chase. That's not Bradley Beal or Zach Levine or Carl Anthony Towns. Let's wrap up with some quick ones here, or what should be quick ones. At Kiroto Leo asks, who's the player with the best offensive rating in the NBA and the worst? I don't like citing individual offensive and defensive ratings, so I did a pseudo answer here. And Adam, do you know which site has offensive points added? I, I think that's um, NBA math, right? Yes, correct. Jokic led the league in offensive points added during the regular season this year with 463.04. In last place, 540th, Isaac Okoro at minus 185. Just not to be biased, I did look at luck-adjusted offensive RAPM. Jokic was also first in that at 2.93. In last, and this was 534, com, which is where I got get my RAPM stuff from, Tail Maladone was 534th at minus 2.71. There's nothing really to debate there. I guess the, the Maladone one surprises me a little bit. Not so much a Coro, but Maladone for sure. I think the only thing I really have to add on the offensive points added stat is that because that's looking at relative to an average player, it doesn't always have the worst offensive players at the bottom so much as the least effective who play the most minutes because the worst offensive players don't play enough minutes to deviate far from zero. So really the worst offensive players in the NBA are going to have like the single digit negative scores. I dig that. Another really quick one. Well, let's, let's make these our last two. This one comes from at Hode games. What are Tybalt's on-off ratings? Again, just relay here. For this season, the Sixers were 1.6 points per 100 possessions worse on offense when he played, and they were 0.9 points per 100 possessions worse on defense when he played. 
I think the both of those numbers are explainable where because he's not a high volume shooter on offense and doesn't do anything else outside of take those threes, that his offensive upside is going to be limited there. He found himself in a lot of bencher heavy units, and I would probably guess I did not look this up, but he played a lot of minutes more so than some of the starters did without Joel Embiid and lifting up some of those lineups is going to be difficult. As we saw in their game one victory against Washington, Joel Embiid was in foul trouble, got slammed when they had their bench heavy units in there. I also, this is the thing with guys who are so disruptive on defense, especially when they're on the ball is, is it easier to neutralize them by taking them out of the action? He doesn't feel like someone you could do that with, but that would just be some of my off the cuff explainers of why are the Sixers statistically worse on defense? It's the Avery Bradley argument all over again, basically. But have you heard that uh, this Matisse Tybel guy is good at blocking jumpers? Because I've heard that. I've the only player who actually blocks jumpers is Chris Boucher. So no, I did not know that. Fair, fair. Let's make this our last question. Comes from Raul Clement. DM me this one. Shout out to anyone who ever DMs questions. What do the Grizzlies need to do to take the next step? Is it just a matter of experience and health? Should they make a trade? I know Adam loves Dylan Brooks, but last I looked, the on-off splits and BPM view him as their worst rotation player out of Justice Winslow. Is there a wing scorer they could trade for as an upgrade there? I feel like Zach Levine would be perfect, but he's not available. Any realistic options? That was a hell of a question, by the way. It was. I feel like Zach Levine is a good answer for a lot of teams for a, a guy who could potentially take them to that proverbial next level because he's such a good from scratch scorer who still manages to involve his teammates. And a lot of these more mediocre teams need that offensive firepower. But that said, like, I, I'm just going to stick with my, my old answer here, which is I don't want to see Memphis deviate from this core because I think the functional pieces are already in place across the board. John Morant is capable of of making that leap. Jonas Valanciunas is just incredibly impactful and an all-around great player. Jaron Jackson Jr., if he's available, can bring this team to that next level. You have the role players and Desmond Bain and Xavier Tillman, who's already had a marquee game in a postseason environment now. Uh, There are so many good pieces on this Memphis depth chart that I don't really see the need to go chasing external help. Yeah, they could definitely go more mid end because they do need they need more of a long term wing. It's not it doesn't look like it's Winslow, not even in their rotation right now. Did not play in that game, Golden State, and I don't believe he's injured again. That's probably something I should have checked. Even Brandon Clark got a DMP coach's decision in that one. What I will say, and you could go more mid end. I don't have names off the top of my head, but like a you know Will Barton would be great for this team if he's healthy, ups out of his contract. They won't have. The Grizzlies only have cap space under very specific scenarios. Jackson Jr. stuff could be mildly concerning. Only played 15 minutes in that Golden State game. I know he's still ramping up after that knee injury. Missed most of the year. So I I don't want to downplay that. But his defense has not necessarily been as advertised. The movement and mobility can be there. But you look at the rebounding. The fouling is an actual problem. Not physical enough in general, whether he's on the perimeter or around the basket. If you wanted to, because you have Jonas Valanciunas, because you have Xavier Tillman, because you have Brandon Clark, if I'm assuming you still believe in him, you could dangle Jaron Jackson Jr. and see if that gets you in a certain sweepstakes. Now, what I will say is, and it would be the same thing with Oklahoma City and all their assets, you need to pick a player that you know wants to be there. whether it's Or you need to go someone who's on a rookie-scale deal who you know will resign with you in restricted free agency. That This would be a great Shea Gilgis-Alexander destination, uh, even though maybe him and John Moran aren't the perfect fit, 
if Dylan Brooks isn't there, it gets a lot easier. But you, you, if you want, I think they could, you could, in theory, use Jaron Jackson Jr. and not obliterate necessarily what you have built because now and sure. is so good. For uh, sure. The other thing, though, is like the war chest has more than players in it for Memphis as well. Like they're still owed a first round pick from the Utah Jazz that will not convey this year, but is only protected for the top six spots in 2022. They're still owed a first rounder in 2024 from Golden State that's protected for the top four selections. Who knows what that team is going to look like that a couple of years into the valid. future? It's, it's unprotected too, right? It's only protected for the top four. It's only protected for the top pick in 2025. It is entirely unprotected in 2026. Then the the second round obligations they have cancel each other out, the incoming and outgoing. So this is a team with just a a plethora of intriguing young players with depth at every single position with multiple incoming first rounders could very well go out and acquire a star. I just don't know that it needs to, but I agree. Like if the, if the Timberwolves like make Carl Anthony towns available, then yeah, dangle Jaron Jackson jr. And maybe that 2024 golden state pick and whatever else it takes and see what you can do with Towns and Jonas Valanciunas on the court together, even if that's a deviation from the the typical NBA stylings right now. But go get that top-end talent and then make it work. See, I'd be against that because I'd be worried about that player leaving. If he's, I would want him signing a new con Like a John Collins, what if you like him next to Valanciunas better than Right, Jared I'm operating under the assumption that... Right, I'm operating under the assumption that that would be part and parcel here. If you still believe in Jaron Jackson Jr., which I do, I want, to, I want especially on offense. I want to make that clear. He's going. I think he'll be fine next season on offense. That's nothing to worry about. More mid end, like a, a Harrison Barnes from Sacramento, where you don't have to give up core pieces to get him. I guess the salary matching gets tough. If Boston was just looking to get off the money, seeing Kemba Walker destination. I know that makes their backcourt small, but if you wanted to roll the dice on Kemba and aren't giving up any core assets to get him, the money then there is difficult. You don't like it, but. It, it, the focus head. should be on a, on more of a wing player anyway, but like a Harris, Harrison, Bar- Harrison Barnes makes them exponentially better with in theory, not knifing into sets. Do you have anything else that you want to hit? Not particularly. I think we covered a lot here. We did. Uh, apologies to everyone whose questions we did not get to. Thank you everyone for sticking with us in locker room, especially with whatever technical difficulties that I was having earlier. Until next time, we leave it to shout out to the one, the only, way better than Jim, apparently, center in Oklahoma City. Their center of the future, apparently, according to Noah Odage, Moses Brown. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.